Uh, Well, our reading this morning is, uh, as you've been warned, comes from the Gospel of John. We're continuing in our series there. We're on to John chapter 5. Willie managed to to do the first part of chapter 5. So I'm going to take our reading uh, from verse 16. Uh, So verse 16 in John 5 all the way through to 29. And this is what it says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Uh, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Amen. Now, in order to really appreciate uh, our text here this morning, we have to see how it fits into the the wider chapter. Uh, When we were reading from verse 16, it was quite obvious that something had happened, and uh, I'm sure you remember what Willie was saying about that before Christmas, but just in case you don't, uh, what had happened uh, at this point, uh, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, what has happened up until this point is that we have had the account of Jesus healing a man. And uh, Jesus, he heals this man, this lame man, tells him to get up, etc. And, uh, you know, it's remarkable. It's wonderful. But there's an air of tension added in. Because after we've been told about the healing, John slips in in verse 9, and it was the Sabbath. And so a little bit of tension kind of enters into the narrative at this point. And it's really interesting what happens then in verse 10. The Pharisees, they come over... And they pick up on this point. They focus entirely on the fact that Jesus told this man, who has been miraculously healed, to pick up his bed. And the Pharisees seized, not on the miraculous, but on the fact that Jesus was telling a man, essentially, to move some furniture. (laughs) You see, it, it, it was the Pharisaical law said that you were not allowed on the Sabbath to move a piece of furniture from one place to another. And so they ignore the healing. They focus instead that Jesus told the man to move his mat, move his bed. And so he has broken their law. And so they come for him. And our text this morning is the response of Jesus to these men. 
it is a defense of a strange sort because it provokes them all the more because he defends his actions by claiming that he is God. It is actually from this point uh, that the Jews are are, are, uh, intent on killing Jesus. Uh, The charge of blasphemy is initiated here. It's a charge which is finally laid at Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 7, leading to the crucifixion. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus had to die because he said that he was God. And yet it is that very claim that makes John write all this down, because John is convinced that he is exactly that. He is God. And so the response of Jesus uh, to their issue of him breaking the Sabbath takes the rest of the, of the chapter. Uh, the first half here, which is uh, verses 19 to 29, he specifically defends the claim that he is God the Son in perfect unity with the Father. Uh, specifically because he is God the Son, he is the one that gives life, he is the one that is to judge, and he is the one that is to be worshipped. There are three things that we'll focus on uh, in a moment. Um, The rest of the chapter following, uh, which we'll do next week, uh, Jesus provides a whole series of witnesses to back up his claims, including his own miracles, scripture, Moses. uh, So we have that going on in the rest of the chapter. But for now, we focus on his claim to be God and what that means. Uh, Of course, uh, some people will still insist uh, that Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, Not Anyone that's actually read the text, I would suggest. (laughs) I mean, we may have uh, some doubts, perhaps, but it's quite clear Jesus did not. It was quite clear that those hearing him had no doubt what Jesus was claiming. That's why they want to see him crucified. And one of the most obvious examples of Jesus saying that he was God is in our passage this morning. Uh, So, for example, uh, he equates himself with God the Father in verse 17. Uh, Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now and I am working. Uh, What this does is he is saying God the Father uh, as creator is constantly at work. Not only did he create, not only will he create a, a new heaven and a new earth, but even at this moment he is creating new life in uh, uh, spiritually and biologically. Uh, every breath that we take, the air that is in our lungs is because God sustains it. He is working every single moment so that everything that exists continues to exist. And I'm doing it too. I'm doing that same work. And so he's putting himself on a par with God the Father. And so the Jews want to kill him. One of the ways in which uh, Jesus claims to be God is in the phrase, the Son of God, um, which we see in verse 25. Uh, Of course, you could also have things like uh, Son of the Father, which means the same thing, sort of used in verse 20. And I suppose that could be misunderstood. Um, When we say son, we usually just simply mean someone who's the genetic offspring, as it were. Uh, I've got three boys, they're my sons. You know, we can use the, the term in that way. That's not what is meant here. Actually, on occasion, we we use it the same way as as Jesus did. Uh, But even in the Bible, we've got a good example. Um, The the, the two disciples known as the sons of thunder. It's not that they were literally the offspring of thunder, um, but uh, they were probably a bit wild, uh, somewhat noisy, you know. Um, 
I, I don't know about you, I always imagine him with sort of like leather togers, you know, kind of, kind of walking around quite, quite, quite the thing, you know. Um, that's clearly not what would have been the case. This is, you know, a slight insight into what it's like inside my mind. But, uh, you know, the sons of thunder. I mean, what would he have to do to get a nickname like that? You know, but you can see what it means. It doesn't mean that they were literally sired by thunder. You know, we're supposed to understand it is son of is just like. I suppose our colloquialism might be something like uh, he's a chip off the old block, but we want to say that he is uh, showing you know uh, something that is very similar to to the father. But actually, we're trying to say here that Jesus is the same stuff. So when here we have God the, the Father, we have God the Son. And when the God the Father is divine and all-powerful and eternal, so too the Son is divine and all-powerful and eternal. And so that's why quite often we'll say God the Son, because it carries the, 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 that nuance, as it were, that he is God the Son rather than the Son of God, which sometimes can be misunderstood. That's why sometimes we'll use that phrase to try and keep what was intended, as it were. Now, if the Jews had misunderstood, if, if, if Jesus had misspoken or misrepresented himself, then in this passage we would have had him trying to correct it. Uh, he would have said, oh, no, 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 sorry, I'm not God, I'm, I'm, I'm just a very good man, uh, or even, even a great man, uh, you know, but, but don't, don't think that I'm God. You know, if, 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 if it had been misunderstood, that's what we would have had in our passage. So please know he doesn't do that. <laughs> Instead, he digs down even deeper. Because he goes on to say, not just that the, the Father and I are equal, he goes on to make the most outrageous claims if he were just a man. Claims that are only reasonable and logical if he is God. So instead of saying, oh, no, no, sorry, you misunderstood me, in verse 19, he says, actually, you heard me exactly right. And in verse 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. It's sort of repeating verse 17. He's saying, we're the same stuff. <laughs> we are the same. And so he says, I'm God. And there are consequences to that. There are three in particular. Uh, firstly, Jesus as God has life and gives life. Uh, eternal life. That's what he has in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just as the Father, so the Son. Jesus holds out the promise of life. Eternal life. Death conquering life. As God, he holds out this promise to his hearers and down through the ages to us, to you and to me. Uh, even now we have this offer of eternal life. Uh, a life that goes beyond this one. A life that makes this one look like what it really is. Uh, even uh, as Christians, we have so much to look forward to, even though we have grasped hold of that life. Uh, I think the best way of describing it, I remember um, uh, Dominic Smart once describing uh, uh, Christianity, uh, the Christian life, as being in the vestibule of God's house. I, I quite like that, to be honest. You know? Uh, you know, the door has been opened, you've been welcomed in, you're in the house, but you're not really in the home yet. 
You know, but there is going to come a point one day when we go into the very presence, we go in where the the warmth and the light and the food is. Uh, There is a time to come in the future when we will be made glorious in the home. And the vestibule is great, you know, it's better than the street. (laughs) You know, a street which is dark and, and open to the elements. Instead, we come in and we get a taste of what it's like. That's where we are. And we've got so much yet to look forward to. That is the life that Christ offers. So, firstly, uh, uh, Jesus as equal to the Father. Jesus as God gives life. But the second point that comes through our text is that as God the Son, He is also the judge. In actual actual fact, when we read our, our Bibles, we find that this is very much an office Uh, kept uh, for that second person of the Trinity, for Jesus. Uh, He is the one that judges. And he is also the one that saves. It's like the the two sides of the same thing. Um, There's plenty of texts I could choose to to, uh, make that point. Um, Acts 10.42 or or 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God uh, and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. That's his one of his roles. We all have to give an account to him. Uh, now, I don't want that to be misunderstood, particularly in light of, of our text this morning. Um, the fact that Jesus is the judge can sometimes be, be made to use, uh, sorry, can be, be used uh, uh, to make Christians fearful. Uh, that's not the intent in this text. Perhaps we're somewhat wrapped up in all the offenses that we have committed. And so we end up fearing seeing him face to face. And that should not be so. Of course, if we were to stand before the the throne of God, reliant on our own merits, our own strengths, then fear would be an appropriate response. There's a good reason to dread the reckoning to come. But that is not the case for those of us who have taken hold of that offer of eternal life. Through the death of Jesus Christ, the judge is also the Savior. Instead of cowering before the judgment seat, we stand because of his sacrifice. The account that we give is whether we believed in him or not. In our text, we're reminded of this. We're told there are two very different types of judgment, two different types of resurrection. Verse 24 tells us that judgment is not for the believer. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The question is, do you believe him? Or do you reject him? Do you say yes to the offer that he has? Do you say yes to the life that he is willing to give? Or do you say no? And then face a judgment which lasts forever without appeal or second chances. Uh, Now, when I was preaching on uh, John 1 back in September, uh, I relayed how I imagine the whole thing to go. And, and I made it very clear that this is how I imagine it. We, we have no idea, to be honest. We, we, we know certain truths and we kind of fill in the gaps. But in my head, this is how it works. And I think it's, it's worth repeating uh, here. You see, I, I'm to stand without condemnation before the judge. 
before the throne of God. And in that moment, before him, all of the misdeeds of my life could very well weigh heavily against me. And I imagine all of the misdeeds written in a book, a great book, a a mighty tome. (laughs) And he gets brought in. That's volume one. There's a mountain of books outside. (laughs) Then they come, these giant books of everything I've done wrong. And I know there is no defense. I know I'm not innocent. I know I'm entirely guilty of every single word and line in each of those books. I can't claim mistaken identity. It's me. I'm guilty. Each line condemns me. And just as that reproachful, hateful book is about to be opened and my crimes read out, there echoes a voice, the voice of my judge and my saviour who says, he is one of mine, put all of those books on my account. And they are never opened. The one that should condemn me is the one who saves me. It's wonderful. Uh, So he is the the giver of life. Uh, He is the judge. But the third point is that as God, he is to be worshipped. That's the point of verses 22 to 23. Uh, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is saying, worship me. Now, a good man would not say that. (laughs) Even a great man would not say that. He says he is God. No one else is to be worshipped but God. Now, I I really love the way that, uh, again, I have to delve into some Hebrew, if you will bear with me. Uh, But I really love the fact that in Hebrew, there's so many different words for worship. Uh, Sometimes, because we've only got one word for it, uh, we get all kind of worked up as to, you know, what it really means. And when someone does it differently, uh, we don't know what to do. Um, Sometimes we say, well, actually, we've also got praise. But the Hebrews have got lots of words for that, too. And so what we have is we've, we've got this wonderful language. We've got all these different words for worship. And, and you've got words, uh, one word which, which means to fear God. Now, there's different types of fear, to be honest. There's the fear that makes you run away in terror. And then there's the fear that makes you bow the knee. That makes you recognize he calls the shots. You recognize that he is the one that has all authority. Uh, yar, there's a whole word just for that. Uh, there's a word for, for, for the pursuit of God, seeking after his presence every day in our lives. Uh, there's, there's a word for, for sheltering under his wings when life goes wrong. Uh, there are so many words. Uh, there's one that you know, uh, hallelujah. What a word. Uh, halal uh, uh, to Yah, uh, uh, praise the Lord. We, we, we often render it, uh, mo- most literally, it means to shine. That's great, isn't it? To, to shine. That, that you would be praising God to such that the joy of God would be so obvious that you would shine. Actually, in, in one rendering of it, it can mean to appear mad in front of other people. 
<laughs> uh, you know, and that, that, that can indeed be the case. Uh, I mean, David, when he's dancing through you know, the city center of Jerusalem, he's dancing away. His wife, Micho, despises him, thinks he's a fool. There are times that when you worship God with all of your being, that the people around you will think that you are mad. That's hallelujah. Even though the world may deride you as a fool because of the giver of life, because of the judge that says, you are one of mine, we can shine, we can rejoice. It's wonderful. But one of the most important things about it is that it's not a word that, that, that means rejoice if you feel like it. There is actually a word for that, but this, this is independent of how you feel. You see, this hallelujah, this big praise for God, this rejoicing in God is not because your life is going well. That's completely separate from this word. Um, Psalm uh, 74 verse 21, uh, let not the downtrodden uh, turn back in shame, but let the poor and needy praise your name. Uh, Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise your name. You see, it is in the fact that he is the giver of life that we can rejoice even when we face death. It is in the fact that he is the judge that we can rejoice when we are rejected and mocked and scorned by anyone else because there is only one person that counts. It is in the knowledge that whilst everything else can be stripped away, whilst everyone else can leave us, uh, whilst uh, any wealth or or health or the esteem of others or every single one of our loved ones, uh, that can all be taken away from us, but nothing and no one can take him away from us. That's why we say hallelujah. That's why that word exists. That's why I'm compelled to say hallelujah. That is why he deserves to be praised and how we can find joy independent of everything that goes on around us. Because he deserves to be worshipped. So having declared himself as the God, the Son, having shown himself to be the giver of life, having seen to be the, the judge and worthy of worship, he sums it all up, digging himself in deeper and deeper in the eyes of the Pharisees. In verses 25 to 27, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is Jesus. God, the Son. And because he is the Son, he offers eternal life. And one day, each and every one of us will meet him. And he will make a judgment. And as the Son of God, he is to be worshipped, honoured, revered, and followed. That's what our text says. And of course, as I look at this text, as I look at our passage, I find that the the lesson here for us is neatly contrasted by the Pharisees. You know, we should respond in the very opposite way (laughs) that they do. In Jesus' life, 
is available. And yet, through the, the legalism, through the trying to do everything in your own strength kind of way of doing things, that the Pharisees were so keen on, that leads to death. And what a contrast we have. We have this choice between accepting his gift or standing on our own merits, our own strength. Two very different outcomes when it comes to judgment. Not just to judgment, I guess, but even the, the lives that we live right now. You see, I have a God who is to be worshipped. I have a God who is to be enjoyed and followed and adored. I do not have an ogre waiting for me to fail, a monster with a, a long list of expectations which makes me live in fear. It's incredible how easy it is, though, to be like the Pharisees. Uh, they focused on a mat being moved instead of a man being miraculously healed. <laughs> you know, it's very easy for us when we look at that and you think, how did they miss it? <laughs> I mean, how can you be so blind as to focus on moving a piece of furniture instead of a man being able to walk? <laughs> and yet, it's actually very easy, if I'm honest. All too often, um, when somebody is saved, for example, someone, someone becomes a new Christian, and we are to rejoice. And yet it is maybe in our nature to very, very quickly, almost immediately, point out the 101 things in their life that don't meet the right criteria. Instead of rejoicing with them and putting their arms around them and trying to help them live a sanctified life <laughs> over time. We all have these sort of lists, these expectations that we build. And I'm afraid that very often they act as a barrier to the gospel. You know, if, if something doesn't look the right way, or something doesn't sound the right way, uh, you know, maybe they're not quite welcome to hear what Jesus has done for them. It's, a, it's, it's common. It's normal. We have a history of it in this country. To be fair, this is not new. It's not like I'm standing here, you know, kind of a new year saying, oh, you're all terrible, you're a bunch of legalists. That's, that's, that's not what I'm getting at at all. I'm saying, this is a problem, let's avoid it. You see, the early church had the same problem. In the early church, it starts off, they're all Jews, so, you know, they're all kind of doing the same thing. Then God starts saving Gentiles, and they don't know what to do. <laughs> all these Gentiles start getting saved, and there are groups of, of, the, of the Jewish Christians who are saying, well, okay, God might have saved you, uh, but you need to be circumcised. You need to eat the right way. You need to dress the right way. You need to observe the right feasts. And you need to observe them in the right way. And many of them really failed to see the scale of what God was doing. Uh, eventually the church sort of works it out. Uh, eventually in, in Acts 15, and, you know, they see them kind of trying to say, well, actually, okay, we need, we, need to, we need to really grasp what God is doing and let go of some of these things. And yet we find in the letters of Paul, this was still an issue, ongoing. You know, attention to the detail meant that they were not seeing what God was doing. It doesn't surprise me when I see the same thing Today, often I've met Christians bound in legalism. I mean, every link of the chain holding them down is a rule that needs to be kept. An edict on behalf of God. <laughs> That's a very important distinction, you know? As opposed to walking with God. You know, they're two very different things. Um, I was swithering whether to share an example, but I, I will. Um, I don't look normal. I appreciate that. 
Okay? I, every, now, every now and again, I look in the mirror and I think, wow, that actually is how I look. I, I realize that, you know? And, and sometimes uh, that can be useful. Uh, I was in a church uh, not that long ago, um, and I, I, was, I was preaching, and of course, you know, you know you're, you're, you're you know, Dr. Hepburn, you're the theologian, you know, there's certain you know, expectations placed on you, and of course, I don't look the part. And I went in, and, 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 and I remember in, in this church in particular, uh, there was a very strict dress code. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a very strict dress code. And, and the problem was is that people would not go into that church because the second they came into that church, because they didn't have the nice clothes that they were expected to have, they were really felt un- unwelcome. They were not wanted because they didn't look the part. <laughs> and then I turned up. So I turned up. And to be fair, I mean, I, I, at that time I was, I was a lecturer in a, in a Bible college, and so, I mean, I didn't have much money. I mean, but I dressed in the, the best clothes I had. You know, I tried my best. I had a shirt on. I think I even ironed it. Uh, uh, you know, I had my jeans that were kind of, you know, I only had one hole. They only had one hole in the jeans, you know. Um, I had some baseball boots on, uh, which, is, which is my, my norm. I got like a cardigan thing, trying to make it look nice, you know, to try my best. But I assure you that I thought a lot harder about what I was going to say than what I was going to wear. Uh, and I preached at the, t- uh, at the front and I finished, and it's one of those really rare events. Uh, normally when I finish preaching, I, I, I go down, I, I apologize to God, and I say, Look, do, do something with that. I think the 101 things I should or could have said. But this is like that one in a thousand where you're actually finishing thinking, oh, that was quite good. <laughs> wow, you know, thank you, you know. And he comes in, you're all excited, you know, you think, yes, you know, especially, you know, preaching to, to folks who clearly aren't massively impressed with you when you get up. In that service, I mean, people got saved in that service. Uh, Christians who had been living in darkness uh, 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 suddenly kind of saw some light. And I had the joy of just having to be there at the time when God did this. So I'm almost skipping when I come down. I'm not, you know, I'm quite ungainly, so it's quite a thing. It's almost skipping. And, you know, in this church, what you would do is, you know, there'd be this wonderful silence while you then go to the front door and do the whole kind of shaky hand thing at the front door. And I came down, and I was about halfway there, and no one, I don't think anyone was breathing. You know, it was just quiet. And about halfway there, when someone in an authority in the church made his way in front of me, blocked the way and said, what do you think you are wearing? But it's me, isn't it? So I took him by the hand and I said, I'm wearing the righteous robes of the Lamb. What are you wearing? (laughs) Uh, The man actually choked. (laughs) Sat down in shock and I continued to do the front door. And uh, it was the start of a thing. It was the start of a thing whereby, uh, interestingly enough, people did begin to relax. People began to recognize they'd started to put barriers around the gospel. That you were not allowed to hear the gospel unless you looked a certain way or sounded a certain way or acted a certain way. Jesus did the opposite. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. We have this, this one who gives life. Real emphasis on that idea of giving life. But it is easy to become Pharisees. I, I, I've got to watch it for myself. I've got to watch out, you know, that you know, people don't necessarily don't think the same way and act the same. You know, we've got to be careful not to be like that. 
We can be so wrapped up in doing things the right way, we miss what God is doing. Uh, the great challenge for the Christian is to try and catch up with what God is already doing. And that's our challenge as we look forward to the year, the giver of life, for us to really live without condemnation because the judge is our saviour. And so we worship with everything that we are. I mean, for the Pharisees, Jesus had to die because he claimed to be God. But then we cannot allow him to be pushed out of our lives. We cannot allow him to be pushed out of our church. We cannot elevate something in his place. to choose life from our Savior and worship Him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have life, though not deserved, though not earned, though not ours by any right whatsoever. Uh, we thank you that that free gift of life can be ours. We thank you that you look at what is inside of a man and you're willing to fix it. That you're willing to, to allow all of us to be a work in progress. And so, Lord, I simply pray for each and every one of us, myself so much included, that we would grab hold of that life that we would see that life growing in us. That we would be a people who know that we're not under judgment, but have been saved by a glorious Savior. And so, Lord, turn us to worship. Not just in the songs that we sing, uh, but in, in, in the way that we live, in the things that we do, the way that we think of you. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people full of life and worshiping. Protect us and forgive us when we take our eyes away from you and onto anything else and restore us once again, I pray, in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen.